John chapter 5, verse 13 to 21. That's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 to 21. And that's found on page 1228 on the Blue I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Excuse me, just rearrange things a bit. Well, good evening. It's great to see you all here. Um, it's the end of our series in the book of 1 John. And we need God's help now, just like we did the first time we opened it. So let's pray and ask that he would speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all that we've been seeing in this letter. And thank you for the ways that you give us confidence and assurance that the gospel is true and that we really do have your life inside us if we are trusting in Jesus. And we pray as we open it up one more time that you would fill us with that confidence, with that assurance, and may the effects of that flow out into our lives, not just here, not just now, but tomorrow and through this week as we go into our everyday lives. We pray that we would be filled with confidence that we really do know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was going to sing this, but it turns out I'm a real chicken. So I'm going to read it instead. Something has changed within me. Oh, you know it? I'm tempted. No, no, okay, no. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep. It's time to trust my instincts, close my eyes and leap. It's time to try to find gravity. 
I think I'll try defying gravity and you can't pull me down. Sounds like a few of you know that, where it comes from. That's from the musical Wicked, kind of, kind of a prequel to The Wizard of Oz. And it comes at the end of the first act, which is a bit of a high point when one of the characters who has been kind of trapped by negative relationships, by the circumstances of her life, um, just finds confidence to break through that, to rise above it. Literally, she gets onto a broomstick and starts defying gravity and flying around. She has the confidence to finally break free of that. And she's saying, I'm defying gravity, you can't pull me down. Confidence is a magical thing. Confidence changes things. Confidence changes people. It changes people from being kind of hunched over on themselves and kind of small, shuffling through life, to suddenly standing up straight and strutting. We, we know the transforming effects of confidence. We see it. You might remember um, Susan Boyle's first foray in the public eye. And she came onto stage um, flirting kind of weirdly with Simon Cowell and Louis Walsh. And you're thinking, someone should have told you not to come on this program. What are you doing here? And then she sings. And you think, my goodness. The, the, she just lights up the confidence. You think, is this even the same person? Or some of you might remember young David Beckham doing interviews even more painful than the normal football interview. Just kind of mumbling into the microphone. Think, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't try doing interviews with this guy. And then he gets on the football field. Where he's confident, where he knows he belongs, and he shines and it's beautiful. When someone's confidence, whether it's in nobility or in money or whatever it is, just even just for a moment, they break free of things holding them back. It's like they defy gravity. Well, John writes his letter, he's talking to Christians who are lacking in confidence. Not self-confidence, but confidence that what they believe is true and real. And John's been talking about the world, meaning um, humanity and things out there that are in opposition to God. And the world has gravity. The world pulls at them. And the way he's been pulling at these Christians is there are people who used to be part of their church used to be, as far as they were concerned, Christians alongside them, and then they started believing some different things about Jesus, started teaching some different things, and then they left. And they left them confused, what's going on? How do we deal with that? And then, to make it worse, some of them started coming back and saying, no, we, you need to believe what we believe now, we've got new truth for you. Pulling at them. Trying to pull them away from what they believed. And the same can be true for us if we're Christians. At some level, you know, here, if you're a Christian, you, you believe the gospel is true, you believe things we're reading about Jesus, but out there is the world, and the world has gravity. In here, it feels like it's true. You know, when you're singing, when you're, you're hearing God's word, and it feels like your balloon being pumped up with confidence, and then you walk out of here, and straight away things start puncturing you. And you feel the confidence leaking out of you. On the tube this week, I walked past a poster advertising Richard Dawkins' new book, Outgrowing God. A beginner's guide. And a little bit, a little bit of confidence leaks out of you. Or somehow you're reminded of that thing that you did last week, or maybe long in the past, and you just feel guilty about it, and confidence leaks out of you. Or maybe you just realise you're not a very confident person. That's just not who you are, and 
confidence leaps out of you. What? If you're confident here, out there in the world, you can feel that gravity of the world pulling you. And as a result, out there, as Christians, often we're, we're weak, we're timid. We hear John saying that Christians won't continue to sin, but we do. We hear the gospel is true and it's powerful, but then when it comes to giving my neighbour an invite to a carol service, I feel afraid. Is this going to do it? John in the text says, we know God loves us, and yet we're insecure and asking, does God really love me? He's saying, we know we're born of God, we know we're God's children, and yet we start looking for other things to anchor our identity in, in relationships, in our careers, in success, whatever it might be. John is writing to Christians like us who are experiencing that pull and saying, you can know. You can have confidence. Real confidence that what you have is real and that it's true and you can live in that, not just here in church, but in the rest of your life. You can do that. You should do that. And when you do, you will fly. You can defy gravity and nothing will pull you down. The big thing is, been saying all through this letter, and we see it here in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. That's the first big thing, the banner of all of this. You can know you have eternal life. That's the purpose, that's why he's right. You might know in John's Gospel, so written by the same guy, but the, the account of Jesus' life, towards the end he says, I write this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you may have life. So people who don't yet believe, so that you will believe and have life. Now he's writing to people who do believe, saying, I write this so that you may know you have life. So you've got confidence. The Christian word for that sometimes is assurance. You can know that you have that God's new life in you and that it's real. Now, you might be here as someone who's a Christian, but if you describe yourself as a skeptic um, or something else. But, but for you, talking about knowing anything to do with faith is a bit of an oxymoron. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. You might have heard um, the Mark Twain quote. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's faith, right? Belief in the face of all evidence to the contrary. John is not talking about that kind of faith. Should we right back at the beginning of the letter? He, t- he says who he is. He, he's someone who saw Jesus. Knew Jesus. Heard Jesus. Even touched the resurrected Jesus. And he's not writing this letter to persuade people that that's true, but he's saying this is something I saw. Now think about how you know things. I was just that almost all of our knowledge is based on someone else seeing something and telling us about it. Or at least a very great amount of our knowledge. Whether it's history and textbooks, or science, other people doing experiments, learning things and telling us about it. Or just, you know, what happened at family gathering last week. Other people hear, we hear it, and we accept it, if that person is trustworthy. And that's what we've got here. John saying, I saw the resurrected Jesus. This is truth, these are facts, this is history. And in fact, down here somewhere, yeah, here we are. Um, a book called The Case of Christ, by someone who went and tried to disprove Christianity, but ended up with this much evidence that actually it was true. And we've got those on the way out. If you want to pick one of those up, that's free. If you'll take it and read it. But the point is, John isn't talking about stuff that's just can't be verified. He's saying, Jesus came. I saw him. I touched him. He was real. 
some of you might think, well, it's not possible to know anything. We can't make truth claims. Well, then, two men walk into a bar. One man says, you know, we can't know anything 100% certain ever. And the other man says, are you 100% certain that what you said is true? It's kind of silly. But it's the point. You, you, we can't say that you can't know something. And anyway, we act as if we do know things. Our lives are based on actually having a good level of assurance and certainty about things. And we make decisions. Big decisions in our lives. But I think maybe the thing for most of us is we think actually it's arrogant. As a Christian to say that I can know I have eternal life. That's presumptuous somehow. It's asking something that I shouldn't have. But actually, if God says you can, if God says you should, isn't the arrogant thing to say, oh no, I can't have that. Actually, if God says you can have it, he wants you to have it. You can't go, well, oh no, I can't have that. That's what this whole letter John has been giving us. Reasons, tests, so that we can know we have eternal life. Let's recap quickly. He's given us the truth test. Are you believing rightly about Jesus? The the real Jesus who came, who was here, who I saw, who I touched, who I knew? Or are you making up your own Jesus based on something else? The truth test. Then the obedience test. If you have his life in you, is that expressing itself? If you say you love God, are you showing that by obeying him? Then the love test. If you've been born into this new family, are you loving the other people in the family? And if you can see those, the truth, the obedience, the love test, and think, well, yeah, not perfectly, but those things are in my life, then John's saying, that is how you can know. You can grow in assurance that you have eternal life. And maybe for some of us, that's just the biggest thing from this letter, maybe even from this passage. You can reach a point of more certainty about the Christian life. Whether you, at the moment, just don't believe at all, or whether you do believe but are feeling uncertain, you can grow in that certainty, in that assurance. That is a good thing. John says you should desire it, you should pursue it. There's nothing noble about saying, well, I'm not really sure, but I'm going to just keep on trying to believe without looking at these things that God says will increase my assurance. That's not noble, that's stupid. God says you can have it, you should have it. Then we can actually pursue knowing that we know God. You don't have to go through life insecure, hunched in on yourself as a Christian. You can defy gravity. You can know you have eternal life. And the question that's going on in the rest of the passage, I think, is why is that such a big deal? What difference does it make to know that you have eternal life? And John comes in on three areas. You, you might have seen as we were reading this, there were loads of statements beginning, we know, we know, we know. And that's how we're um, kind of breaking this up. Firstly, prayer. We know God hears us. This is verses 14 to 17. Have you ever ignored someone for a really long time? Like a really long time? In the end, they stop trying to talk to you. Because they know you're not listening. One weird thing as a preacher is um, people's listening faces. Now some of you are great. Some of you, you smile, you nod, oh, good appreciative face. Um, sometimes, when certain people are here, there may be an amen. Or hallelujah. Some of you frown. Even that's okay, because I know you're listening. But some of you, your listening face looks a lot like your going to sleep face. 
And sooner or later, I'm just going to stop talking and I'll start reciting nursery rhymes to, to, to see if you're listening. If you don't think someone's listening, you stop talking. You stop trying to communicate with them. Whether or not you think God is listening, God hears you, influences with you. If, if you don't think this is real, then prayer is a waste of time. If, on the other hand, you have assurance that this is real, you have eternal life, you really know God, then prayer is the best way you could use your time. Verse 14, John says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You see, he's switched from the you to the we, so John is in this with us now. If we ask anything, he hears us. I can ask everything from God, and I know that I will have it. But John, that sneaky little so-and-so, he inserts that little phrase, ask anything according to his will. And you go, oh, I knew there was a catch. I knew there was a small print. God has his will, he has his plan, and he only gives things that were in his plan. Things that would have happened anyway. And so your prayer's not answered? Oh, it wasn't God's will. Tough luck. Your prayer was answered? God's will would have happened anyway. What's the point? Why pray? Well, what is prayer? Think about it. When you pray, when you ask God for something, are you advising him? Has he not noticed this thing that you're praying about? Are you trying to persuade him? He's not, he, you know, he's not sure he's going to do this good thing and you need to twist his arm to get it out of him? Both of those are kind of scary. God doesn't know what's best. No, no, no. God knows what's best. He does have a plan. He has a will. Then what is prayer doing? Um, this year, having not been to a gig for about ten years, I went to see one band use twice on one concert tour, which is a bit of a sad thing to do. But it was a really great gig. And on the second gig, um, I looked up and I saw around the auditorium these big nets filled with what looked like enormous balloons. And then, at some point near the end, someone pulled a little string or pressed a little button or some kind of trigger which meant all of these balloons came cascading down and you know, bouncing around and it was great. <coughs> what is prayer? Prayer doesn't create the balloons. Prayer doesn't create what God is going to do. It doesn't do it. Prayer is the little trigger, the little string. Prayer is the way God gives us the things that he wants to give us. And that makes prayer incredibly significant. That when you kneel by your bedside, when you sit and close your eyes, when you pray to God, that is the means that he has put in place to release his blessings. It's like the fuse that lights the firework display of God's will, of what he wants to do in the world. So what's John saying? Well, he's saying, well, pray about everything. He's not saying only pray about something. things. Pray about everything. But where you can, find out what God's will is and pray that. <coughs> find out his revealed will. The things he says, these are the things I will do, and pray them. What are those things? Well, you have to get to know God, get to know his word, find out what he promises. So a Christian is ill. How do you pray for them? Well, can you pray for healing? Yes. We're encouraged to do that. Will God heal them? We're not promised that. But he has promised to sustain that person's faith if they're a Christian. He's promised to purify them. He has promised to grant them faith. So we pray those things with confidence. Or someone loses their job. How do you pray for them? Do we pray for a new job? Pray that they'll you know, come into some money somehow? Well, yeah, we can, we can pray that. Who knows? Maybe God will give that. 
But he's promised to provide everything they need. He has promised to increase their faith. So we can pray with confidence about those things. If it's God's revealed will, he said he'll do it, we can pray with confidence. If it's not, if we don't know, then we'll you know, pray anyway, who knows? And even if it's not in accordance with God's will, he listens. Your prayers aren't bouncing off like a satellite dish, you're bouncing off radio waves out there in case someone hears it. God bends down to hear. One verse in the psalm says, because he stoops down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. We know God hears us. So we have confidence when we pray. Now verse 16 and 17, they look different. It looks like he's going on a different subject, but he's not. He's still following this idea. If it's God's will, you can pray for confidence. Let me explain. So remember the situation he's writing into. People have left this church, and that's confusing. And people are tempted to follow them. Maybe some Christians who stay behind are kind of edging towards that. Maybe falling into some of the patterns of behaviour that were being encouraged by these other teachers. Maybe even starting to believe some of the things, feeling like they're being drawn away. And the people who are left again, what do we do about that? What, how do we think about that? For us, we feel the gravity of the world pulling at us, and we see it pulling at other people. Christians, we know, might be tempted into patterns of behaviour that we know don't honour God. Might be tempted to idolise their career in overwork, or idolisation of success, or be demeaning to their spouse, or harsh with their children. You think, well, what, how do I help? What do I do here? God says, verse 16, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray. Not ignore it, thinking, oh, it's messy, or what can you there? Not telling someone, feeling superior, going, you've never missed what they've done now. And just feeling, you know, good about yourself. Not going, sin, sin, let me get the big red button, and going nuclear on them. Pray. Pray for them. Before you talk to anyone else, talk to God about it. Pray and God will give them life, John says. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. And you go, come on, John, in English, please. Lots of ways of understanding these verses, and I think some of them are just very wrong. Here's, here's where I've got to. The person committing a sin that does not lead to death, John calls them a brother or a sister. In other words, they're a Christian. The person whose sin leads to death, he doesn't say that. The person committing a sin that leads to death. Now, look back up to verse 12. Just before this passage, John says, Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What's the difference between having life and not having life? Jesus. What you make of Jesus. Whether you come to Jesus for the life that he gives. For the sacrifice that he gave to deal with our sins. To give us God's life. So the sin that leads to death then that's the person who won't go to Jesus. The person who won't accept what God says about Jesus. The person who believes in a different Jesus. The person who won't make use of the sacrifice that Jesus has given. I think, I think, I think that's, that's exactly what the people who left the church in John's day were doing. They were, they were changing Jesus. They weren't coming to this Jesus. I think that's what he's saying, the sin that leads to death. I just pause there because... There might be someone here, it might be you. And you, you kind of believe this is true, this whole Christianity thing, but you're holding it off. And you're not letting Jesus near. 
It's a bit of a warning that if you do that for too long, there can come a point where he won't speak to you. Where you can actually hold the message off for long enough that you lose the message. In student class last week, we, we saw that in the study we were doing. And John says that leads to death. Spiritual death, separation from God. Having to bear the weight of your own failure, your own wrongdoing. And then the infinitely worse penalty of having pushed God out of his own world. That's sobering. What if this is the last time you heard that with any clarity? Don't ignore that. But let's keep going because John's still talking about prayer. He's still saying that if you ask something in God's will, you can have confidence he'll give it. So, so the question is, these Christians who look like they might be falling away, what is God's will? They're a brother or sister. They're born of God. They're God's children. What is God's will there? Just look into verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. God's will for his people, if they've got his life in them, they will not keep walking away forever. God, real newborn life, will turn back to God. And John is saying, your prayer might just be the trigger to bring that person back. The people who sin leads to death, rejecting Jesus. John's not saying don't pray about that, he's just saying that's not what I'm talking about here. You can't have the same confidence in that prayer. God might answer that prayer, but for the person where you've seen that life, where you've seen truth, love, obedience, where you've seen genuine love happening in them, John says you can pray with confidence. And it's important because all of us, or many of us, have got friends we're worried about. Maybe children, parents, siblings, loved ones who looked real. They looked like there was real life in them, and then it looked like they're nowhere, and it weighs you down. Just as if, if that was real life that you saw there, then pray. And God will bring them back. He will give them life. And how do you pray? Well, you can't be certain, but you can say something like, God, I feel like I've seen real life in that person. I feel like that was genuine. I saw these things, this life being lived out, growing. So please won't you do what you said you would And bring them back. We know God hears us. And if you're confident of the reality of eternal life, you'll pray. And you'll see God's plans happen and God's blessings released around you. You might even see wandering Christians brought back by your friends. We know God hears us. Secondly, more briefly, security. We know Jesus keeps us. Verse 18, that we just saw. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. That word keep there means kind of guard, protect, keep safe. And when I was a child, I got attached to things. I remember a Lego model that I made in my year two classroom. It was a very special Lego model. And I remember that John Warner broke it. (laughs) John Warner, if you're listening, I have not forgotten. That was a special Lego model. Or I had a little fossil. I don't even know what fossil. A little fossil that I I carried around with me. I was a, a weird little child. Um, and I, it was special. I kept it with me. I protected it. And then one day, my brother, Phil, he got it and he broke it on purpose. 
there are, there are more stories like that. Many things that I guarded my precious to me and then I lost. I'm just not, not good at it. But maybe you know what it's like, something precious that you have. Maybe a keepsake, an heirloom, something that belonged to someone you love, like a photo, a memory. And you keep it, it's precious. You don't just leave it lying around anywhere. People can take it or trample on it. You keep it. John says that's the Christian, verse 18. The one born of God, Jesus keeps them safe. And that's why you can have confidence, pointing back. That's why you can pray for wandering Christians with confidence. But it also means we can be confident. Jesus keeps us. Verse 19, John says, he talks about the world. It says, under the control of the evil one. And it's like it's his domain, his territory. And it's sleepy and apathetic and not trying to get away. It's helpless. But you know you're a child of God. You know where you are, you know who you are, you know where those lines are. Jesus says in John chapter 6, John's Gospel again, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. If you're a Christian, you've been given to Jesus, and you are precious to him. And he is so much better at keeping things than I am. He will never lose you, never take his eye off you, never leave you lying around, never let you be taken away. Later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 17, not long before Jesus goes to the cross, he's praying and he says, While I was with them, my disciples, I protected them and I kept them. Same word, keep, I kept them. And again he says, Holy Father, keep them by the power of your name. And in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that you guard them. Anyone born of God, anyone with this life in them, Jesus keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Now as Christians we know Satan can do lots of things. He can scare us. He can take things. Immeddle in our lives. Break things. He's, he's allowed to do stuff but he cannot touch our life in Jesus. He cannot touch our salvation. He cannot get through Jesus. Satan might go to Jesus and say let me get them. Let me at them. I want to take them. I want to Eat them alive. And Jesus says, over my dead body, you will not have them. He keeps us. <laughs> that's a wonderful promise. If you're just stuck, and you feel like, a, this thing that I keep doing, makes me doubt whether I'm really a Christian. You can make progress. You're not under that power anymore. You're not in that world anymore. Or maybe some, some of us are just so worried in life. We're not sure, we're not confident. And so most of our energy is taken up with making ourselves safe, making sure our options are open, making sure that we're protected. Am I financially secure? Am I relationship secure? Am I, am I okay? God wants to free you from that. To know that you're secure. Jesus keeps you. Maybe there's some specific obedience or risk that you're being called to by Jesus. And you know that, but you're thinking, well, I won't be safe. You are safe. Jesus keeps you. Yes, the world has the control of the evil one, but you're a child of God and he's got you. So you're free to serve him with everything you've got. And some are just so uncertain, so helpless, feeling, but will I keep going? It's not the strength of your faith that keeps you going. It's not the strength of your faith you rely on. It's Jesus' grip on you. And he says he doesn't lose any of those as we he keeps us. That's the second result of assurance. 
We know God hears us. We know Jesus keeps us. And thirdly, fellowship. We know we know God. Now, John's been using the word know a lot. And the question is, what kind of knowledge is he talking about? Because I know lots of things. I'm an educated man. I know the square root of 81 is 9. I know what kind of metal that chair is made out of. Not really useful things. Um, but you know, I, I know things, but those things don't, don't really affect my life. They don't really affect me on any deep level. There's a different word John uses here in verse 20. The Son of God has come so that we may know him who is true. It's a different word. Not, not knowledge as in like just knowing facts, knowing about stuff. It's a word that means relational knowledge. Many times in the Bible it's intimate knowledge. But this the kind of word that's usually, and Abraham knew his wife Sarah. You go, oh, we, we, we all know what that means. It's that kind of word. And John says, you know God. <coughs> Intimately, relationally. I turned 32 this week. And probably the most significant part of that was I realised that actually that means that um, I met Heather, my wife, properly exactly 16 years ago, halfway through that, that 32 years. How do I know that's real? Well, I could go look at the marriage certificate, both of our names are on there. I could look at photos. I could look at you know, children's birth certificates, look at the facts. But there's something deeper. I know her. There's a relationship. It goes beyond just kind of names on a piece of paper or photos. Christian assurance isn't just knowing facts about God, it's about knowing God. I heard a story of a little boy who idolised a footballer. He knew all his stats, he had all the stickers, all of the training cards. He could teach you all about this football, he knew everything about him. And then one day he got to meet his hero. To spend time with him. To know him. And that is all the difference in the world. If you think Christian life is about collecting stats on God, and being able to recite his goal-scoring record, there's so much more. We're meant to know God. John says we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's not about having eternal life as a thing. Like, okay, well, I've got this insurance product. That when I die, I've got life in the sky. No, it's about sharing, being in Jesus. Being connected to him like my arm to my body or like a branch to a tree. And then of course it's eternal life because he's eternal. John says, you can have confidence of eternal life. You can know God hears you, know God keeps you. And that's not an abstract knowledge, it's not a head knowledge. You can know you know God. I'll just zip through those a little bit, because I want to get to this last verse. Verse 21, final words. John says, little children, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And you go, What? Where did that come from? He hasn't mentioned idols anywhere in this book, as far as I'm aware. He, what, what, what's he doing? I think he's saying this. He's saying, don't let anything steal your confidence. Don't let anything take away the confidence that you can have in knowing eternal life in Jesus. Idols, what are they? Well, yeah, in Ephesus, where John's based here, there are statues, there are other gods, but I don't think that's primarily what he's talking about. <coughs> he's saying anything that pulls you away, 
from the true God and eternal life. And that, that might be statues. But for them, it's more likely to be this, this false teaching, this new Jesus, this new information that they're being peddled. That will pull them away from Jesus. And John's saying, don't go near that. Don't be pulled away from this, because you'll lose your confidence. For us, what might be our idols? What might we put in the place of Jesus? Maybe relationships that tell us we'll be respected, we'll be valued, we'll be secure. Success that tells us we can be confident, we can maximise ourselves, we can reach our goals and know how much we're worth. Beauty. A career. To be in control. All things that say they can give us confidence, but they eat us away inside. They ask for more and more and give us less and less. They don't deliver. And that's because they're false. They're not true. When the Bible uses the word idols, it almost always the subtext is, is there's nothing there. There's no reality, no substance, there's nothing underneath it. John's saying, he's true. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He's true, they're false. He's real, they're fake. And that means that they will eat your confidence away. And look at this confidence. To know that God hears you. To know that he keeps you. To know that you know him and have eternal life. Is there anything that's worth trading that for? Would you let that confidence be stolen away for anything? So as we finish, maybe you're thinking, you, you haven't got assurance. And there isn't an obvious, you know, there isn't a big obvious sin in your life. You feel like you believe in the truth, you're loving other people. Is there an idol there? Is there something you're more committed to than Jesus? Whether it's a relationship, or your degree, or your career, or your children, or your future. Unless Jesus is number one, that thing will be eating your confidence. Or maybe you're just wavering as a Christian, maybe wondering. Maybe saying, well, if I just let this other thing in, this thing that I know doesn't please God, but I just let it into a little bit. Maybe that will Or maybe you're thinking, actually you're much further on the line, you're thinking, maybe I'm just not going to keep on being a Christian. Maybe this is my last time for church. Look at this confidence you can have. Look at what you've given up. That God knows you. You know him. He hears you. He keeps you. Is that worth trading away? Hear these last words from John. Don't let anything steal your confidence. And the rest of us. Just for a second, have a vision for what life would be like if you really had this confidence. A greater assurance. Imagine praying, knowing that God heard you. And seeing God answer prayer in your life. Your life individually, in our corporate life as a church. In the next 20 years of City Church's life. A church that prayed because we believed that God listened to us. Or what would it be like to know that God kept you? And so to be freed up from worry, to be freed up from making yourself safe, free to do crazy things to serve God because you know that he's got you. Isn't that a confidence that's worth fighting for? Yes, the world has ground. Yes, there's an enemy there with messages he wants you to believe. But Jesus provided what you need. Hold on to him. Hold on to that gospel that you've already won. Keep your eyes on Jesus instead of being hunched over. You can walk. You can run. You can strut. You can fly. You can defy gravity. 
and nothing in hell will pull you down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the confidence that we can have. Because you, the Son of God, really came. You revealed the Father. You really died to give us an atoning sacrifice. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. Thank you that we can know that we really have eternal life. And we pray that for those of us who do know you, we may grow in that assurance. For those of us who don't yet know you, please grant confidence that what John is saying here is true. So that everyone in this room may receive and grow in the knowledge of eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.